Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, uh, August, not August, October the 5th, 2023. Earlier this week, did an interesting show with the editor of... Um, Liberty's Quarterly, uh, Leon Weaseltier, a very well-known uh, literary critic in the U.S., uh, on an essay he wrote in the current issue of Liberty's, Same But Different. He was writing about America, and he described America, he said, we are a teleological nation. Um, the American contribution to the popular understanding of change is the bias towards it. The feeling that change is in itself intrinsically in its own right a good and closely related to this assumption is an interest in its acceleration. We're not doing um, America today. We're doing the reverse uh, with Jonathan Coe, a very distinguished writer, novelist, nonfiction writer, UK-based writer, and he has a new book out called Bourneville. And uh, reading Bourneville, it's a wonderful read. It's just out in the US. It's already out in paperback in the UK. Seem to represent Britain as the reverse, as a country. I don't know what the reverse of the word teleological is, Jonathan, but might that be true that Britain is, whatever the reverse of teleological is, Britain is a country... Um, uncomfortable, uh, uh, opposed to the idea of change, even if it is changing. And your book, uh, this new book, Bourneville, is very much about change. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the uh, thesis of the book, if you can use that word, is that uh, change does happen in the UK, social change, but it happens uh, very slowly and very incrementally. And uh, usually happens at the grassroots and attempts to impose it from above by government uh, tend not to work too successfully. So the, the central character of my book uh, is a woman called Mary who is born in the 30s. The book tells the story of her life right up until present day, more or less, 2020. And she does change a lot in that time, but, uh, you know, she changes her, uh, at her own pace and in her own way. Yeah, I love Mary in the book. I mean, she's a she's a wonderful character. She has this phrase, uh, caper, all that caper. Um, <laughs> and there's a, a skip and a dance. I looked up caper. It said skip or a dance about in a lively or playful way. There's a skip and a dance about this woman, which in a, in a sense is not always reflected in the Britain that she lives in. Is that fair? Yeah, I suppose that is fair. Um, to get the kind of personal stuff out of the way, the character of Mary is not just closely based on, but an exact portrait of my own mother, as far as I could, uh, as far as I could draw it. Uh, she died in 2020, and almost immediately after her death, I began thinking of uh, a way to memorialise her uh, in fiction. And this strange uh, phrase that she used to use all that caper uh, came back to me almost immediately as one of her kind of defining phrases. As you, as you say, it means a kind of lighthearted, lively dance, but she, she used it about everything. You know, she would say, uh, well, I've been to the shops and all that caper, or, you know, we're going to have 
you know, have cheese and biscuits and all that caper for dessert, but she would then use it in the most surprising context. Like I remember once hearing her talk about World War One and all that caper. So um, she had a, yeah, she had a very um, light-hearted outlook on life. And uh, yeah, I, the challenge of the book really was to combine that uh, with the heaviness, the potential heaviness of the subject matter, which takes in, uh, you know, World War II, the ups and downs of the royal family, Brexit, COVID, and, you know, everything in between. Yeah, and at the end of the book, you, you have a an autobiographical note um, confessing that Mary is based on your mother, but also underlining the fact that her husband, who's perhaps the darkest, the least attractive figure in the book, has nothing to do with your father. Tell us about why you chose to create a fictional figure married to your imaginary mother who's so different from your father. Um. Well, there are really two different ideas being combined in this book. Uh, there's the idea of a, a state of the nation novel, which tries to map some aspects of British social change between 1945 and 2020, so a period of 75 years. And uh, as I said, uh, a very personal desire to write something about my mother's life. And because these two strands, if you like, uh, mesh quite nicely in chronological terms. I mean, they cover the tame, same time span, basically. I sort of blithely entered the book thinking that they would uh, mesh in every other way as well. And I began writing uh, a much more autobiographical novel than has finally been published. But I began to realize that the kind of things I wanted to talk about, uh, racism, homophobia, Britain's relationship with Europe and so on. I mean, they just they just weren't the personalities in my own family to uh, to embody those ideas and give them fictional life. Uh, so I began by writing, uh, basing the novel around an almost exact replica of my family with two parents and uh, and two brothers, and it quickly became obvious that that wasn't going to work. Uh, that I needed uh, a bigger family in order to represent all the different strands of opinion that are represented in the book. And also it became clear that, uh, you know, my own father, who was rather a mild mannered and shy and lovely man, uh, wasn't going to, uh, wasn't going to serve the kind of fictional purpose that was needed. So, uh, I jettisoned a lot of the autobiographical elements and played up the kind of, uh, socio historical ones. He, in a way, I guess he's the, the dark shadow uh, in the book. It's, it is a dark shadow. He's defined, I think, maybe I'm wrong, by his racism uh, and his classism, but particularly his, his, his racism. Um, was this something that you wanted to build the book around, his hostility, objection to people of, of different color, skin color? Well, um, you know, I wanted to show through the character of Mary something that uh, tends to get forgotten or perhaps tends not to be stressed enough, which is the rather optimistic view that most people's 
uh, views on race, most people's attitude towards people who are ethnically uh, different to themselves have evolved in the last 75 years and have improved. And that was certainly uh, the case with my mother who, uh, you know, like many people of uh, her generation, uh, was guilty of racist language and racist uh, attitudes uh, many years ago, but towards the end of her life in her 80s, uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't hear any of this. She'd become uh, much more accepting, much more inclusive. But I didn't want it to be uh, a Pangloss kind of novel. And I wanted also to recognize that there were some people for whom uh, racism is kind of fixed and entrenched, and it's an intrinsic part of their being, their personality, and you can't, you can't really argue them out of it. And so uh, the character of Jeffrey uh, is there to, uh, to illustrate that idea, really. Um, I mean, there's a moment early on in the book, uh, in the section set in 1953, at the time of the Queen's coronation, where Mary has to make a choice uh, between two men, uh, a man called Kenneth, who's uh, an up-and-coming journalist who has moved to London, and Geoffrey, uh, the guy she's met very young uh, back at home in Birmingham and who's already proposed to her and she's already accepted. And um, that's not just a, a romantic choice within the scheme of the book. It's also kind of a political choice and uh, a choice that Britain itself has faced uh, at several points over the years. Uh, you know, do you take the path of open-mindedness, of inclusivity, of embracing difference, or do you shut yourself off uh, from all of that and huddle together with your own kind and just try to go it alone? And there's also a kind of fairly obvious metaphor that going on there, I guess, for the choice that Britain put to itself uh, in 2016 in the uh, the referendum over EU membership, which isn't actually mentioned in the book, or at least not very often, uh, but it's certainly, you know, a huge uh, shadow overhanging the whole of the story. Yeah, and along with uh, your imaginary father or the, the husband of... Um... Of Mary, the other shadow is, of course, that of Boris Johnson, uh, someone who you're obviously not very keen on. Uh, I was really struck, right, by this, this, these, these parallel themes of agency in the book, Jonathan. On the one hand, do we choose our own lives, and on the other hand, do nations choose their own lives? Leon Wiesenthal writes about that in terms of his own personal sense of transformation and American sense of transformation. And, and you deal with exactly the same thing. The idea that this woman could have had an entirely different kind of life. Of course, she reminds particularly her kids that had she had that life, they wouldn't have existed. Um, what about the alternative to Britain? You never really lay that out. And of course, this is a, a novel, a piece of fiction rather than nonfiction. But is it just about toleration or is there some other more substantial alternative narrative that could have existed from 1945 onwards. Uh, the, the book deals with Europe a lot, and there's often juxtapositions between the UK and Brussels and also Germany. Um, you know, there have been uh, many watershed moments in post-war British history. Uh, 
the book begins with one of them, 1945, uh, VE Day, the end of the Second World War, and the possibility of building a new kind of Britain, which uh, which was broadly embraced uh, to start with by the majority of the country. You know, we made the surprise decision after having uh, been led by Churchill through the war, uh, the great embodiment of kind of conservative patriotism, we made a surprise decision to vote in a Labour government in 1945. And that was the beginning of obviously the modern British welfare state and the National Health Service. Um, the next major turning point, I guess, which I don't uh, actually describe as one of the kind of chosen highlighted moments in the novel, although I do write about its immediate aftermath in the early 1980s, is the 1979 uh, election when Mrs. Thatcher came to power. And uh, that was really the point at which Britain turned its back on the post-war consensus, uh, turned its back on the idea, on several ideas really relating to society and community and welfare and looking after the most vulnerable and instead embraced basically a neoliberal uh, economic direction, which we've followed ever since. Um, the next, uh, you know, another major turning point comes in 2016, where we have this referendum on EU membership, which is not heard by many people in the country as a question about whether, you know, do you want to belong to a trading bloc of which the economic advantages are pretty obvious. It was heard instead as a much broader question, what kind of country do you want this to be? What kind of person do you think you are? Uh, how kind of angry and frustrated are you with the current status quo? And the answer to that last question came back much more loudly than anybody expected, that people were extremely angry with the current status quo and would do kind of almost anything to disrupt it. Um, so all of these, uh, all of these events are kind of pivotal moments uh, in the story of Britain in, uh, from 1945 to now, but, uh, I didn't always want to address them directly or put them at the center of the narrative. I wanted to show, uh, the moments that happened around them, uh, the immediate, uh, consequences, the immediate aftermaths and uh you know to to approach the story from that direction we are speaking with jonathan coe the author um of bourneville wonderful new book about britain um book that uh, as i said jonathan it's just out in the us isn't it um and it's uh, it is, yeah. you know one of the things that i thought i wouldn't say was missing I, I assume you chose to leave out. You talk about 1979, of course, and Mrs. Thatcher and the election of uh, the Conservatives that changed the course of British history. What's missing from the book, or what's absent from the book, is the United States. Mm. Uh, that Britain, perhaps in in 79, particularly given Thatcher's relationship with Reagan and the embrace of neoliberalism, as you say, the Chicago School of, of Economics. Did you choose to leave the United States out of this book, or is it just not there? 
Um, the book uh, began in my head uh, with a lot of meetings I'd had with people in different European countries in the spring of 2020. I was on a book tour of uh, Austria and Germany. And uh, a lot of people were asking me, as I'd been asked uh, in France and Italy and Greece and other places in the, in the months before this, uh, you know, what is going on in the UK and why has the UK turned its back on Europe? So, um, so the book was conceived as an investigation into uh, Britain's relationship with the other European countries and uh, with the EU in particular. Um, I mean, I've been writing around the theme of British national identity for quite a few novels now. And uh, 10 years ago now in the UK, I published a book which was published in the States, but didn't uh, didn't get much attention called Expo 58, which was a book about the uh, Brussels World Fair of 1958, which uh, one of the distinguishing features of which was the fact that the, at the height of the Cold War, the Russian and American uh, pavilions were put kind of side by side, uh, almost as a kind of uh, uh, joke by the Belgian organizers. And uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of, Espionage took place at that site during the time, and that's the book really where I, I very specifically and explicitly show, or try to show that uh, Britain was at that time and subsequently facing a choice between uh, a close alliance with America and a close alliance with Europe, and which one is it going to take? I mean the the possibility of a closer diplomatic, political, economic, cultural relationship with America was very much touted uh, as one of the main selling points of Brexit during the referendum campaign of 2016. Uh, you know, this was this was the Brexit's great argument, really, that we have a choice between Europe and America and our destinies with America, uh, our great wartime allies, and as it always has been. And the relationship between Thatcher and Reagan was was brought up uh, many times in that uh, discussion. But I guess the election of Trump kind of scuppered that a little bit and changed the, uh, uh, you know, very much changed the nature of that uh, relationship. And, uh, you know, uh, the sense among British, British politicians, I think, is that uh, with the Biden administration, you know, we're we're no we're no nearer to uh, to the kind of close relationship that those uh, U.S. loving British politicians were angling for back in 2016. And what they didn't see, I suppose, is that uh, part of a large part of uh, Britain's appeal for uh, American politicians and businesses was the closeness of its. Uh, links with Europe and the fact that it could act as a kind of portal, a kind of doorway into a closer European relationship for America. And as soon as we uh, kicked that idea down and said, no, you don't get, uh, you know, you don't get the rest of Europe when you have us, you just uh, have us on our own terms, take it or li and like it, um, you know, then 
my sense is that America backed off a little bit at that point. You went off, you Brits, uh, Jonathan, you went off with the wrong guy. Could have chosen, <laughs> could have chosen the interesting journalist and went off with the, the dull, uh, failed classicist racist. <laughs> one of the things I love about the book, uh, which uh, I excuse the pun here, one of the most delicious things about the book is its focus on chocolate. The British have a love affair with chocolate and the book's title, Bourneville, is taken uh, from uh, the Cadbury's uh, company, uh, which is now, as it happens, perhaps not, co not uncoincidentally, um, a, uh, an American-owned, globalized, neoliberal company, I guess. Tell us a little bit about the story, Bourneville, the place, and the chocolate, and why that is the, the heart of the book. Yeah, I don't know how, uh, how widely known Cadbury's chocolate is uh, in America. Uh, it's a kind of national treasure in this country. And the Cadbury's began making it in the 19th century. They were a family of uh, Quakers, and they were also uh, a family of kind of philanthropist capitalists who felt that um, profit-making and industrial manufacture could still go hand-in-hand hand with good wages, good living conditions, and so on. So as a means to that end, they built uh, a new village on the outskirts of Birmingham in the late 19th century and called it, Bourne, called it Bourneville. They put the ville on the end, which is not a common uh, ending for British place names, to give it a kind of sound of continental uh, sophistication. Uh, because, as we all know, and as they knew even then, the best, um, the best chocolate actually comes from European countries like uh, France and Belgium and Switzerland. Um, well, that is a matter of opinion, isn't it? <laughs> Jonathan, I mean, that's a very European opinion. I don't know. I certainly don't agree with that. And I don't think all British people would. You're not going to tell me that uh, Hershey make the best, uh, the best. No, I'm, I'm not talking about Hershey. I'm talking about Cadbury's. Right. <laughs> I mean, Americans okay. make terrible chocolate. I agree. But yeah. uh, anyway. Um, so uh, this was a very big employer. Uh, in the area, and many members of my family, um, aunts, uncles, my grandfather, uh, worked at the Cadbury's factory. And, uh, you know, on one level, uh, as, you, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's a sad and all too familiar story of uh, a kind of a small business, an idealistic business, uh, succumbing to uh, market forces and neo neoliberalism and being uh, taken over. So on. it's now, uh, it was owned by Kraft. It was bought by Kraft and it's now owned by uh, Mondelez. And um, ironically, uh, the biggest uh, European chocolate manufacturer, uh, Milka from Germany, uh, Against which I pit Cadbury's chocolate in one of the uh, in one of the key scenes of the novel when the German side of Mary's family meets the British side, and they argue over who has the best chocolate. And during um, the World uh, 1966, during the World Cup final, so uh, absolutely, yep. Uh, so both, uh, another both, World Cup final in chocolate. <laughs> both companies are owned uh, by Mondelez now, so uh, so the argument is kind of over, really. And I, I imagine that the recipes for chocolate have become rather similar. 
Yeah, and I um, found that uh, really interesting in the book. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Simon Johnson. Um, he's a, an economist. He teaches at MIT. He has a new book out called Power and Progress uh, on Technology and Prosperity. He's from Sheffield. You're from uh, Birmingham. And what he argues in the book are there are alternative traditions, a middle-class innovative tradition. And one of the things that that struck me about your book, you don't, it's it's slightly unsaid, is that there is an alternative tradition of of Quakerism and of John Cadbury that represents an alternative to the the. Uh, the, the the neoliberal shall we say philosophy of, of of the free market is that what you were trying to suggest the that it's not just about the chocolate it's about principles of politics and organization and ethics yeah absolutely and um although i've uh, described it as being an optimistic book in some ways it's also um uh, you know i, I don't hold out much hope for for companies like that anymore uh i mean you know nearly all of them i would imagine cadbury certainly have been have been snapped up by bigger organizations and the uh the cadbury's factory itself uh in bourneville doesn't make nearly as much chocolate uh anymore the chocolate uh manufacturer has been uh, farmed out to places like uh, Poland in Eastern Europe, where where costs uh, labor costs are much lower, and so on. And the site of the factory itself uh, is now a theme park uh, called Cadbury World, where you can uh, you know you can you can go and ride around on a little train and learn about the history of chocolate manufacture and, and kids kids kind of stuff their faces with chocolate and get very ill and that kind of thing. Uh, so it's you know it's it's all too obvious and potent a metaphor really for what uh, has happened um, in the last few decades and in Britain certainly since 1979 where you know whether she intended to or not uh, the kind of policies that uh, Mrs Thatcher introduced and the kind of ethos that she injected into the British British bloodstream you know very much militated against. Uh, the Cadbury uh, version of capitalism, because if you know if, if profit is absolute, if, pro if profit and shareholder dividends are the only thing that matters, then the Cadbury's uh, the Cadbury's way of doing business doesn't really stand a chance. Yeah, I looked up Bourneville, which was a, a or is a dark chocolate, and apparently it's still it's not available in the U.S., but it's available in the U.K., South Africa, and India. Of course, the last or the former vestiges of the the empire. Um, you talk about Bourneville now um, as a theme park, and your presentation, I think, of Britain in the book is of just a giant theme park. You focus on a series of royal weddings and deaths, the absurdity of the British royal family. What, why do you think Britain has become this ludicrous theme park? H how is that connected with the free market. Uh, it, it, was it inevitable that it chose to go the neoliberal route, that it would become a theme park and its fetishization of absurd institutions like the royal family and James Bond? Um, I didn't really in, intend to write about the royal family as much uh, as I ended up doing. I mean, the, the, the idea behind the book really is it's a, uh, 
I mean, it's a story of family life as much as anything else, middle-class British family life. And uh, I wanted to organize it around a series of um, national events. In my novel, Middle England, a couple of, uh, a few years ago, uh, I wrote a scene where everybody, all the characters in the book up until that point were sitting around various television sets watching the 2012 uh, Olympic opening ceremony. Uh, itself, I guess, a kind of theme park presentation of Britain, but rather uh, an impressive one to my mind. Uh, kind of quirky and ironic and self-knowing, but also very unashamedly celebratory of uh, the good things uh, in Britain at that point. But that was a successful scene, I thought. I, I mean, I enjoyed writing it and it seemed to strike a chord with readers. So I wondered if it was possible to write a whole book uh, like that. Uh, but taking uh, a lot of different uh, similar events, which could be watched and commented upon by the by the different characters. And when I sat down and drew up a very quick list of the obvious events I would use, I realized that uh, I think four out of the seven directly involve the royal family. And I suppose that um, that testifies to our obsession with this family and the and the hold it has over our collective imaginations, which I'm I'm constantly being asked to explain, and, and I find it very difficult. But uh, if you can't explain it, Jonathan, who can? <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, the I suppose the difference between my book and something like The Crown is that, is that the royal family are the, are the background uh, in this book. They're, they're, the, they're the background to the lives of, uh, of Mary Lamb and her, uh, and her sons and her husband. And uh, I had no intention of making them more prominent than that because I wasn't really, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really interested in the story of the of the royal soap opera. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's harsh uh, to say that Britain has become a theme park country. Um, what we're not anymore is a is a manufacturing country of any uh, consequence. And uh, you know that was a that's the result of a series of uh, cumulative decisions which began in the 1980s and have been taken by successive governments ever since, Conservative and Labour. Uh, so we're now more or less a, a services-based economy instead, and a financial services-based economy uh, in particular. Um, but you know, in the in the midst of all this, uh, life goes on, family life goes on, relationships uh, are formed and dissolve, friendships come and go, uh, children are born, old people die. And this is the, this is the stuff of the novel really. And the, uh, the reason that I decided to put a character based on my mother, Mary, in the, uh, in the center of it is that this was her ethos really that national stories are all very uh, interesting in the way, but that's, for her, that wasn't really the stuff of life. It was a, that was the theme park really, and, and family life was the reality. But the novel, the subtitle is a novel in seven occasions, and you use most of those occasions built around the royal family. Uh, for me, the, the climax of the book, I mean, there are a series of climaxes, but the climax is, when the one uh, person of 
different ethnicity who married into the family makes a speech at the end of the book about honesty and she accuses everyone in the family i guess including your the, the, her recently departed mother-in-law of not facing up to the truth of not telling the truth of not recognizing what was really happening which is of course again a a a fairly unambiguous critique of britain that no one's ever willing to address the truth uh and one of the the other memorable scenes in the book is after the death of diana spencer when uh one of the characters in the book gets beaten up because they were laughing when everybody else was um everybody else was crying over a woman that they didn't know what's the connection jonathan between this this mass grieving and this mass intense emotional association with a family that nobody knows and no one has any idea about uh on the one hand this personalization of emotion uh which reached a, an absurd climax during during the death of uh Diana although seems to be happening even today with Harry and the rest of the royal family and many britain british family and particularly the family in your book their inability to actually address the truth maybe not just of their own national life but of their personal lives maybe it's true globally i mean i'm not saying americans face up to their truths any better but this seems to be a, 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 a core theme feature narrative in the book yeah, well, I suppose uh, I kind of don't accept the idea that the British are uh, an unemotional people or a, an unfeeling people. Uh, you have this kind of cliche, I suppose, that of the British stiff upper lip and uh, contrasted with, say, the uh, the open displays of emotion that we associate with uh, with Southern European countries and so on, Mediterranean countries. Um, I think the British are a very feeling people and that the death of Diana was the thing that really brought that into the open. But um, it's not that we suppress our feelings, it's that we find the most curious and indirect outlets for it, I suppose. And we, we kind of block up so many of the most obvious outlets that uh, our emotion comes out uh, in unexpected places. And I suppose we are getting to the heart here of what the royal family means to British people because in some strange way and for some strange reason, they do provide that outlet. And uh, the moment in the book where, yeah, a character is attacked, physically attacked, during the week of Diana's funeral for laughing at a joke as he's walking past uh, a bunch of people who were camping out waiting for her funeral in a state of mourning. Uh, that was a true story, not something that happened to me, but something that happened to a friend of mine. Uh, but the other true story, of course, is what happens uh, with Jeffrey at the end of that chapter, because um, at late that night after uh, Diana's funeral, Mary's watching the highlights on television and she hears a strange noise coming from upstairs and it's a noise that she doesn't think she's ever heard before. And she realizes that it's the noise of her husband crying. And she goes upstairs to find out that he's in absolute floods of tears over the death of this young woman who, as you say, he never knew personally. And Mary realizes that he's crying tears for her, 
that he never cried for his own parents, for instance, uh, when they died. And, you know, this is based on one after another of the Vox Pops that uh, were shown at the time of Diana's funeral, where people, men in particular, were saying exactly this. They were saying that they couldn't stop uh, crying over the death of Diana, and they were crying more than they had than when their wives had died or when their mothers had died. And, uh, you know, this, this to me indicates, as I said, uh, a, a nation that is very prone to uh, emotion and these days public displays of emotion as well because the uh, the thing that people became so angry with the Queen about during the week of Diana's death was the fact that she wasn't showing any emotion publicly uh, but also are people who uh, you know for one reason or another find it uh, impossible or undesirable to uh, to really be honest or forthcoming about what the origins of those feelings are and use things like the royal family and the royal family in particular as a kind of proxy and an emotional uh, overflow system, if you like. Yeah, and you're obviously angry about this. Uh, as a younger writer, people have said you you were angrier. What a carve-up, for example, is a classic. But there's an, a degree of anger in this, and I think particularly in this context, the one bit of sex in the, in the book which is rather vulgar gay sex, takes place uh, during the, the Diana um, funeral. So th this profoundly offends you, doesn't it, Jonathan? That was my sense from the book, at least. The royal family. Yeah, and, and the absurdity of the whole thing. Well, it is, it is kind of absurd in the 21st century, uh, you know, and the, and the death of the Queen um, last year, uh, almost exactly this time last year, in fact, uh, was a kind of uh, opportunity to maybe just to scale back uh, the royal family. King Charles talked about having a much more uh, abstemious coronation ceremony, one which was more fitting to be taking place during a severe cost of living crisis. But it didn't. Uh, but it didn't happen. Uh, they went ahead and had the the, the usual sort of uh, over the top rigmarole. Um, so, uh, am I angry? I'm, I'm kind of frustrated, I guess, but I've, what I've think I've learned as a writer over the years is, uh, that whatever you're angry about, you don't bring readers around to your point of view by berating them and kind of hitting them over the head with it. Uh, so I guess the tone of Bourneville is more a kind of, uh, rueful sadness, really, than, uh, than a kind of in-your-face anger. I mean, there's a lot of comedy in the book as well. There's a lot of humor in the book. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I but thought that the sex scene was, was hilarious. I, I, I mean, it's a sadness. It's a book about, we did a show with Philip Stevens, a FT writer called Britain Alone, The Path from Suez to Brexit, which deals almost identically with your narrative. It's a nonfiction book. It's about a country alone. It's about a country lost without a clear direction. Yeah, I haven't read that book. It looks like I should. It looks like the non-fiction uh, equivalent of mine. Yeah, maybe, uh, well, you, sh you should read it. F finally, um, you have two lives too, or you probably have more than two lives. You're a writer, but you're also a musician. And there's a, a strong musical quality to it. There's one hilarious scene where the British mi uh, misspell Messiah and the French uh, composer. 
does the book or did you want the book to have a, a, a musical quality um as a writer uh, do, do you think you write in a in a in a musical way or, or are your two worlds of making music of composing of playing music and writing mostly fiction and though non-fiction do these exist in parallel um they do exist in parallel uh and i keep my uh my composing and performing life uh very separate from my writing life to all for all kind of practical intents and purposes but i think there is i'd like to think there was a kind of musicality to my writing and uh, for me, what it always comes down to is a question of uh, rhythm, with it, which I think is a uh, an idea that doesn't get talked about often enough in terms of uh, fiction or the novel in particular. Uh, because rhythm in a rhythm in a piece of music, everybody knows how important that is, but it's also very important in a novel, it, it, and it's to do with uh, on a in a large scale work like a novel, it's to do with the proportions and the relationship between the different sections uh it's to do so it, it works on a on a macro level like that as well as a micro level like the musicality of the sentences and you know it's almost as if you have to write sentences that you can tap your foot to and you have to build your narrative in blocks of uh blocks of story that have a, a rhythmical relationship to each other uh, like the movements of a symphony. And I think without that, uh, readers very quickly get lost in a novel and, and, and find a novel uh, difficult to navigate. So, uh, yeah, I have a strong sense of rhythm as, as a composer. What I write is mainly uh, jazz or jazz rock, and, uh, and that spills over into my approach to fiction writing as well. But this book, the narrative is 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 the reverse of a German symphony, I don't know, Beethoven's Ninth. It's not from darkness to light, is it? How does it end? Do you think what kind of musical ending would be appropriate? Um, well, there's a kind of grand tragic climax, uh, a bit uh, Marlarian, I guess, where uh, where Mary uh, dies as my mother did uh, during the COVID pandemic, the first lockdown, uh, not of COVID, but in circumstances which are made worse by COVID. And then there's a kind of much uh, gentler, much more ambiguous coda, which I would maybe compare to a maybe a more delicate French piece of music, something by Ravel possibly, uh, where we return to the house uh, in Bourneville, where the where the story begins, uh, we're with a completely different uh, character. Instead of being uh, a middle class English woman from the nineteen forties, she's uh, an Iranian woman who has come to Britain as a refugee and is now uh, set up with her husband in this house. But they're both listening to the same thing. They're both uh, listening to the sound of uh, school children playing in the playground at the end of their street. And, uh, you know, it's a, in a novel which is full of change, full of social change, it's a, it's a gentle reminder that there are also continuities. And that is the kind of uh, bittersweet coda at the end of the book. Yeah, and uh, you should read out the last sentence, which is really lovely. Uh, uh, 
Do you want to just read that as an end? Uh, over and over, the mantra. Which is... Let me just find it. You can't remember it off by heart. I'm afraid not. <laughs> The whole of the last sentence or just the last uh, few words? Last few words. Yeah, okay. A disembodied voice whispering in her ear over and over the mantra, everything changes and everything stays the same. <laughs>